Geogrid. Hope everyone had a good weekend. This is Neil from Grassroots Security Podcast, and apologies to my listeners as I was not able to release an episode last week. I am back though. And speaking of coming back, welcome back, Carrie. I know you were away for a while, so what did you get done? I am shocked. That is no question to ask a lady. Well, you said you were out for maintenance, which is why I was asking what you got done. And besides, you're not a lady. I will ignore that last remark. But as you are interested on why I was gone, I just added more storage. But I thought you had plenty of storage. I had to add more because of all your podcast recordings. That hot air is taking up a lot of space. Jeez, you really are back. As usual with the disclaimer, the opinions here are my own, and relying on any information from this podcast is at your own risk. Now on with the show. Last September 9, Facebook's Nick Clegg wrote that the Irish Data Protection Commission, or DPC, has commenced an inquiry into Facebook's controlled EU-US data transfers and has suggested that the standard contractual clauses, or SECs, cannot be in practice be used for EU-US data transfers. If you remember, back in July, the European Court of Justice ruled that the EU-US privacy shield was invalidated. In that same ruling, it considered the standard contractual clauses, or SECs, for the transfer of personal data to processors as still valid. I have not seen the Irish DPC's statement regarding the use of SECs, so this is only one side of the argument. Though I am surprised by this, given the ruling that the SECs are still valid and that the only other alternative to the standard contractual clauses are the binding corporate rules. The Irish DPC must have interpreted the ruling differently from what I understood it to be. Well, you are not a lawyer nor from the Data Protection Authority. True, and this is the reason why I say these are just my opinions, and not meant to be legal advice. As a background, binding corporate rules or BCRs are legally binding internal code of conduct operating within a multinational organization which applies to the transfers of personal data between the organization's European entities to its non-European entities. This could also include franchises and joint ventures. Within those BCRs are legally binding data protection rules where the data subject rights are enforceable. These are also approved by the relevant data protection authority, like the Irish Data Protection Commission, or, or the French Commission Nationale de l'Informatique et de Liberté, or CNIL, depending on which lead supervisory authority has been identified as the most appropriate for the multinational organization. Looking at Facebook's EU Data Transfer Addendum, published on August 31, 2020, this will give you an idea of the standard contractual clauses. It is not clear if Facebook has binding corporate rules, as I cannot find one published on their website. This is probably the reason why they are disputing the suggestion from the Irish DPC that they cannot use the SECs because it means they don't have any alternatives. They are against the wall on this. Reuters then reported on September 11 that Facebook has launched a legal action against the Irish Data Protection Commission in relation to this. Facebook urged that regulators adopt a pragmatic and proportionate approach until a sustainable long-term solution can be reached. In the same article, the Irish DPC declined to comment. We are just starting to see the fallout from the July decision of the European Court of Justice 
on the invalidation of the EU-US Data Privacy Shield. And it may also force a number of organizations to look at binding corporate rules while the other options are being looked at. Why hasn't the Irish Data Protection Commission released a statement to clarify the SCCs? I do not know, but as there is legal action, it may be clarified through that process. I still think it is very important for the Irish DPC to release a statement to clarify the validity of SECs, as this could have widespread implication for organizations transferring personal data from Ireland to countries outside of the European economic area. This is also to hear the other side of the argument, otherwise all we are hearing are from Facebook's perspective. So what can we do in the meantime? At this stage, organizations that transfer personal data to a country outside of the European economic area are really only faced with two actions or non-action. One, wait and see what happens with high court ruling. And two, organizations may consider looking at binding corporate rules. However, I know this is a long process, which is why you can count the number of organizations that went through this route. In other news, unless you are living in a cave, the US elections are just a few months away. And just like with any major event, cybercriminals are working actively. In Microsoft's On the Issues blog entry for September 10, Microsoft has detected cyber attacks targeting people and organizations involved in the upcoming presidential election. As you know, Microsoft has a program called Microsoft Defending Democracy Program, which they started in 2018 to safeguard the electoral process. The program is meant to 1. Protect campaigns from hacking through increased cyber resilience measures, enhance account monitoring, and incident response capabilities. 2. Increase political advertising transparency online by supporting relevant legislative proposals such as the Honest Ads Act and adopting additional self-regulatory measures across their platforms. 3. Explore technological solutions to preserve and protect electoral processes and engage with federal, state, and local officials to identify and remediate cyber threats. And 4. Defend against disinformation campaigns in partnership with leading academic institutions and think tanks dedicated to countering state-sponsored computational propaganda and junk news. I did not know about that program from Microsoft, but it shows more organizations are taking a stand to protect the democratic process. Fair point, Carrie. The one of interest is Strontium, which is a group operating from Russia. Microsoft has been tracking the activities of this group and was even identified in the Mueller report as the organization primarily responsible for the attacks on the Democratic presidential campaign of 2016. The reason why I mention this is of interest is because of the attack methods they used. What are those attack methods? Well, there are two parts to the attacks. One, they use an ever-changing infrastructure coupled with the Onion Ring Network or Tor anonymization service. The ever-changing part is when they change IP or network addresses regularly. From Microsoft's blog, it mentioned that they changed 20 IPs per day and used more than 1,000 constantly rotating IPs. This makes it difficult if you are using a blacklist as part of your defenses unless you get information on what those IP addresses are in real time. And two, they employ credential harvesting techniques. In 2016, they were using spear phishing. However, they have done further automation and focused on two types of credential harvesting methods brute force and password spraying. In brute force attacks, 
their tools attempt to use many usernames and password combinations to attack rapidly in a short period of time. What Microsoft has seen is that the tools are attempted over 300 times per hour per targeted account over the course of several hours or days. In password spraying attacks, their tools attempt to use username and password combinations in a low and slow method to mimic users incorrectly typing their passwords. What Microsoft has seen is that the tools will see four authentication attempts per hour per targeted account over the course of several days or weeks, with nearly every attempt originating from a different IP address. Low and slow sounds very sneaky. Because it is. Traditional monitoring methods tend to look for a high number of login attempts from the same IP address. But if it tries to mimic a human and the attempt occurs from different IP addresses each time, it makes it more difficult. So what can organizations do? There are a few things that organizations can do to protect themselves. 1. Enable multi-factor authentication or MFA. I've mentioned this before and will mention it again. Make sure you have another factor or method to authenticate in addition to your passwords. This can be a physical or software token, or it can be a phone call or text message, with the latter the least secure due to security weaknesses in text messaging infrastructure, but it's still an additional measure. If you do use your mobile phone, please ensure that your mobile number used for MFA is not publicly known. It is interesting to note that Microsoft mentioned the majority of enterprise accounts do not have MFA enabled. If an organization does not have MFA enabled, they are just asking for trouble. Surprise! 2. Ensure strong password policies. Configure your systems to only allow for complex or difficult to guess passwords and passphrases. If possible, set up your system to block a banned list of passwords like passwords that have been published on the internet. This is because certain passwords may meet the password complexity, but because it has been published on the internet, they are now considered insecure. And three, monitor for failed authentications. This is more difficult to implement as it depends on what capabilities your organization has. For brute force attacks, it is a bit easier as you can have some form of pattern based on frequency and the number of sources the attack is coming from from within a certain period of time. But this can also result in a high number of false positives, especially if your organization does not distinguish between interactive user accounts and non-interactive service accounts. Interactive user accounts are those accounts that allow for logging into systems with active interaction in the environment, like editing a document or creating a spreadsheet. These are typically your everyday use accounts. While non-interactive service accounts are accounts tied into the running of a service or application. For example, you will need a non-interactive service account to run your web application. And these accounts are typically configured not to be able to log into your systems, thus non-interactive. Whenever the password expires from a service account, it will typically generate a lot of authentication failures. Thus, it will appear that you are getting a lot of attacks. So this is why brute force attacks monitoring rules tend to result in false positives. And then, the more difficult monitoring to implement is the password spraying. This will require a more behavior type of approach, meaning it will require the combination of where the login attempts are coming from. For example, if it is coming from the network blocks that Microsoft has published, like the Tor network. And then, if you see infrequent login attempts from the account over a period of days and weeks coming from different locations, this may point to a password spray. Your monitoring system should be able to build a behavioral pattern for that user on where they typically log in from 
and any change in that login behavior will result in an alert. Again, this is a more sophisticated detection that not a lot of organizations have. But if you are using a third-party provider like Microsoft, they may have capabilities to detect or prevent these types of attacks, but they're not going to be perfect either. That does not sound very promising. I know. And that's the reason why I always recommend the MFA as well as having the strong password policies. Because they are two controls that a lot of organizations can implement. And on detecting these types of attacks, we just need to get better. And that's it. I hope this episode has been useful. I would love to hear from you, so if you can drop a message or leave a comment in my blog. Till then, Slán Gafal. Have a great week ahead. Take care and keep safe.